Welcome to Point by Point, conversations, interviews, and legal commentary for today's business professionals. Brought to you by Waller. Welcome to Point by Point. This is your host, Morgan Ribeiro. Over the last five years or so, we have witnessed a lot of consolidation in the healthcare services space. The healthcare industry now, however, is facing extreme financial pressures due to COVID-19 that will have lasting effects on the healthcare merger and acquisition market. I have asked David Marks, L.A. Galleon, and Porter Matters to join me today to have a discussion around mergers and acquisitions in the healthcare services space. Welcome to the show, and thanks for joining me today. Thanks, Morgan. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Morgan. On today's episode, as I mentioned, I'm joined by David Marks, L.A. Galleon, and Porter Matters. David is a partner in Waller's corporate practice who provides counsel to physician practices and healthcare private equity firms in M&A transactions. And L.A. and Porter are with Brentwood Capital Advisors, a boutique investment banking firm working with middle market healthcare companies. Porter and L.A., Brentwood Capital recently released its Q1 2020 healthcare services M&A report in which you all highlighted the impact of the ongoing pandemic on the M&A market and what you predict to occur in the coming months. LA, to kick us off, I'd like to hear from your perspective, just at a macro level, what all are you seeing happening in the economy right now? And how is that ultimately impacting what we're seeing on the merger and acquisition front? Sure. Thanks, Morgan. You know, I think from a macro perspective, you know, deal volume was you know, slightly down in 19 compared to 18. Uh, there were several large deals done in 18. But I think most expected 2020 to be a little down from 19. We had, you know, pretty long economic recovery, really high prices and leverage across the board. And certainly COVID-19 threw cold water uh, on an overheated market. Uh, I think the other piece is very few sectors of healthcare have not been disrupted. So providers uh, have seen pretty big disruptions to surgeries, visits, clinics being closed. But on the same breath, software providers or folks who provide services and software to the healthcare system have seen pipelines and things like that either evaporate or be delayed at best. So it's it's really hit every per, every type of company across the healthcare marketplace. Are, are the transactions that were underway prior to the pandemic generally still on target to close or have those also been delayed? I think it really depends on the type of transaction. You know, if you were <clears throat> if you were buying a company, I mean, clearly second quarter M&A volume is going to be a 90% reduction from where it was last year. You know, so I think if stuff was on the goal line, you know, ready to close and the business hadn't fallen apart, we've seen, you know, it closed. But I would tell you that 90% plus of the stuff we were working on or stuff we th- we hear was in the market has been delayed or, or really kicked down the road. David, is that similar to what you're seeing in your practice right now? It is, especially for the larger private equity backed exits, those are definitely on a delay. I think for a lot of those sellers, they're not that interested in creative processes until debt markets recover. What they want is to get a return of capital. And to do that, I think they want to maximize their opportunity. The flip side is we're seeing, although pretty much in Q2, the smaller add-ons all went on pause. I think we're going to see a surge and a return of that kind of smaller add-on activity, precisely because a lot of these private equity future sellers want to maximize their upside and grow EBITDA as much as possible when the economy does fully recover, when debt market can support a larger acquisition of an entire platform. So let's talk about the dynamic between sellers and, and buyers. Over the last several years, it has been said that it is a seller's market, but given what's happening right now in the economy and ultimately in the M&A market, will, will there be a shift? Will it become more of a buyer's 
market than a seller's market, meaning there will be more sellers than than buyers. LA, I'll start with you. Sure. Yeah, I think it'll take some time for the market to settle and for the economy to reopen. In healthcare, a lot of these businesses are simply closed you know, right now. So there is, no, there is no market. And I think it's almost impossible to do a transaction in that type of uh, environment. But I, I do think sellers, as we get into the second part of Q2 and Q3, will have to adjust the new normal. And so it'll take time for that to kind of set that reality to set in. And then I think, as you mentioned, uh, sellers seller's market. Uh, it has been like that for a while, but I think it's going to take time to kind of bridge the delta between buyer and seller. It doesn't It doesn't really matter what asset class that is. And so I think two steps. One, what's the new normal? How long, do, how long does it take to determine what that is? And two, you know, really managing expectations of the sellers in that environment because it's going to be dramatically different. Porter, what are you seeing from, from your end? You know, I, I think LA is right. I think what I'd add you know, we feel there's always going to be there are always going to be buyers. There are always going to be capital providers for good companies, regardless of the environment. I think we feel that's that's going to be true here as well. And, and frankly, this environment may really distinguish great companies from mediocre ones. I think two things that sellers have going for them now, even in this tough environment, we've seen with the CARES Act stimulus program, massive, massive economic stimulation in excess of $2 trillion. So I think that's going to help soften the blow that some of these companies have had uh, over the last two months and compensate for some of the lost uh, revenue, particularly those that have had to shut down completely. I think in addition to that, and I think back to the start of this year, you know, at JP Morgan, there is an ocean of capital out there waiting to be deployed. Prior to this unfolding, it seemed like everybody had a new fund, had a bigger fund, many of those in excess of a billion dollars. So I think, you know, those are dollars that are looking for places to be deployed. And I think, you know, while we expect sponsors to be patient, to be thoughtful, to be strategic about how and where they deploy, it's, it's nonetheless a, a lot of dollars that are going to be looking for a relatively scarce number of really good assets. Totally agree with Porter. The best targets are still really good targets. And if they can perform and demonstrate patient demand is returned or is still there, then buyers are going to be scrambling for it. It is true that there are some strategic buyers, some of the big ones out there that are highly leveraged and don't really have room to do deals. But I'll tell you, the fear of missing out is very strong. So with a lot of these really good practices, the ones that can demonstrate, hey, I keep open on an extra Saturday and I still have a line of patients out the door, there's a strong expectation and ability to demonstrate to people that the EBITDA will come back in full. And those, uh, from a number of our clients, are, are seen as not only potential opportunistic plays because the field of buyers is smaller, but also particularly important and attractive for funds that need to be able to show a return and pro forma EBITDA. Right. That makes sense. You know, as the as the world is fighting the pandemic right now, M&A activity in many sectors has slowed down. Yet many industry advisors, you know, you've all mentioned private equity in particular. We've seen that PE firms have an opportunity to consider select healthcare segments, accelerated growth drivers, and that they should deploy their dry powder into sectors, which may see unprecedented demand during this crisis. Do you all agree with that? Uh, Porter, I'll start with you on that. Sure. So you know, I think, again, going back to the beginning of this year, the economy was humming along. I mean, it was doing great. And, and I think looking at our report, these are numbers that we recently published. PE funds invested $92 billion in 591 distinct transactions in the first quarter. And that's an 8, 8.5% increase year over year from 2019. So we came into the year strong. I think as this COVID situation has taken root, 
it's not the thematic areas that are going to shift. I mean, everybody, I'm sure, is interested in telehealth, and you see that in the public telehealth companies. But I think it's going to be more a prioritization of tuck-in deals, add-on acquisitions, deals that can be done with little or no debt. I think you're going to see uh, some shift in structure in terms of using seller notes in lieu of senior debt, higher uh, shareholder rollover in some cases from sellers. And, and I think, you know, in all honesty, we expect deal volume is probably going to remain pretty low, certainly through the second quarter and third quarter of this year. You know, capital markets just don't do great with uncertainty. And I think what we're looking at now is a time of, of just unprecedented uncertainty. So I think the world will open up, we'll get back to normal, but it remains to be seen kind of what that volume looks like. But I think you're going to see near term a lot more kind of tuck in, add on smaller acquisitions in lieu of big platform acquisitions. David, is that similar to what you're hearing from Waller's healthcare private equity clients? It is. You know, I, maybe I'm a little bit more hopeful that we'll see some return of uh, M&A activity. But, you know, much of it is driven by these macro factors, but also really simple issues like PPE. If you've got some of these practices that in order to drive the volume they need to support the valuation or multiples that they were getting pre-COVID, the reality is they can't run those procedures at that same kind of volume until they get access to PPE on comparable prices. Um, and being able to figure out when that price will return. Is it is it November? Is it December? Is it when is it exactly? It's a tough one. So the reality is that overall value will decrease. But again, I, I do think that good practices are good practices and buyers don't want to miss out on the opportunity. I think where you are going to see is what what you are going to see is some buyers that are just too leveraged and are just not in the play anymore. And, you know, the question for a lot of sellers is going to be, are you willing to do some of these creative structures that Porter and LA are referring to? Are you willing to do what Gastro One did, for example, well known that uh, what they did is is a seller no with some creative options on it. You know, I don't know if PE sellers will do it, but founders, I think it makes a lot of sense. And it makes a lot of sense to talk to bankers and others who are really thinking creatively about how can they make sure that they have an exit soon and also have future opportunity and upside, but get the deal done. LA, anything you'd add to that? Yeah, I would tell you, I would echo what Porter and David have both said. I think when you we hire an advisor, be it a lawyer or a banker or someone to help you through this, the challenging part of today's market is it's, it's tough to define what market is. You know, what is fair? What is the bell curve? What should this look like? Because I think if you talk to 10 different buyers about a potential opportunity, you're liable to get 10 wildly different answers. And so that's the hardest part is is the consistency, the things that the things that capital markets typically want don't exist. So I think by default, we're having to move to these other structures that that may not be as transparent and as straightforward, but it's really all you can do right now. So we, we may return to kind of normal, but I definitely think the market will be whatever market is will be different than it was pre-COVID. Right. So let's I want to hear some some of your thoughts on specific sectors within healthcare services. I'll start with behavioral health. Both of our firms do a lot of work in this space and have for many years. And our two firms most recently represented psychiatric medical care and its investment by Consonance Capital. Um, at times, there have been specific areas of behavioral that you know have heated up. And right now, for instance, there's a lot of conversation around investor interest in autism, eating disorders, addiction treatment, just to name a few. Um, what trends are you seeing in this area and what do you think will come in the post-pandemic market? LA, I'll start with you. Sure. Mental health in general is something that's been you know, impacted by this whole crisis. We have a client out West and uh, I think his 
Uh, it's an outpatient mental health business. And I think his suicide hotline was at 400 percent year over year uh, from patients calling in. And so job losses, all these things compound isolation, the things that mental health uh, providers are set up to provide. So it's one of the few sectors when we talk to clients today, hey, can our, can our business do something? Mental health is in, as Porter mentioned, telehealth is one of the few segments of healthcare service that's still kind of open for business. And unfortunately, it's a pretty big demand for the services. You know, there was some activity in Q1. I I think the things you can do from a telehealth standpoint, outpatient standpoint, and mental health will will be will be attractive for a long time. David, I know that's an area that you're tracking closely and working with with clients and the behavioral health space. Anything you'd add to that? I think it is an exciting area, and we had been lucky to work on one of the larger mental health counseling platforms out there uh, pre-COVID. The concept of it, though, to me is is proven by COVID. The fact that uh, there's such an interest and demand for uh, telecounseling, um, to me, or at least what I hope to see, is an expansion of uh, some of the rules that otherwise limit the ability for prescriptions, for example. So if there's a, a more flexibility or creative legal structures that would allow some of these counseling platforms to tie in with psychiatry platforms, it's an enormous growth opportunity. Unclear to me at this point whether or not COVID is going to be enough to spark that, but clearly the trend towards telemedicine in the context of mental health treatment from everything from autism um, and eating disorders, which has has had and is continued to have a, a massive amount of growth and interest is a real opportunity and one that we're closely tracking. Yeah. And I think, you know, home health and hospice switching to another sector of healthcare services has received a lot of attention, you know, of recent years. And LA, anything that you would mention about the home health and hospice space and particularly how it's been impacted by COVID-19? Sure. The, the trend was already there. Home, home care and hospice companies already saw people who were more comfortable being in a home than a facility-based setting. This has accelerated that trend. I think someone mentioned earlier the biggest issue of them getting equipment when they go into a nursing home or someone's home. Uh, that's a, an issue for all providers. But I think if you ask the average American, hey, where can you receive your care? They would choose their home. They wouldn't choose to go to a facility. And so the businesses we've talked to in home care and hospice are you know, doing fine. They're treading water in this environment. They're not declining. They're not growing by leaps and bounds. But if you look at the public companies, they trade for about two and a half X uh, the multiple that other providers do. So they, they have done really well in this. We have we closed a deal in Q1 in the hospice space. We have other clients in the space. So it's, a, again, I think it's, and then if you look at hospice too, the other piece I'd note, their reimbursement is already per diem value-based. So they're already ahead of the curve as far as not doing fee-for-service. I think a lot of the healthcare industry can probably learn from this sector. Absolutely. Um, Porter, looking at a, a market that's, there's been a lot of consolidation over the last few years, looking at the outpatient services, so dermatology, dental, vision. What did you all see in Q1 and what do you expect to come over the next few months? Historically, these have been incredibly attractive subsectors and they have a lot of things in common. They operate in large addressable markets. There, there's substantial fragmentation. There's really strong in-market demand, you know, typically driven by demographic trends and an aging population that has income to spend on mostly elective procedures. And from an investment thesis, you know, it's, it's pretty simple. Uh, at least in theory, though, it can be hard to execute. You buy assets, you integrate them, you put infrastructure in place, and then you can sell that or recapitalize that at a premium. 
you know, I, I think the challenge you know, in the first quarter with all of these subsectors is that they're dependent on patient volumes, which haven't been there, and they're dependent upon patients getting these elective procedures, which you know, have been down dramatically, if not down to zero. You know, in, in dental, it's the veneers, the bridges, the crowns, in derm, it's the Mohs surgeries. Those things just haven't happened, uh, at least in the latter part of the first quarter. And so those businesses are going to be you know, adversely affected I think the expectation is, you know, we talked about this earlier, there, the care stimulus should soften some of that blow. There's going to re- be a rebound. You know, these are these are groups where you're only going to put off an elective procedure for so long. You may not get it the, the first day that you're able to. But once each of these sectors opens up, I think the, the, the trends are going to start to at least the trends in volume and uh, having these sort of procedures performed. I think they're going to pick up dramatically. They may not be exactly where they were in January. But I think we're going to see those start to tick up, you know, over the course of this year. So it's been a tough quarter, but I think we're optimistic that it'll it'll improve. David, I know you spend a large majority of your time in working with clients in the outpatient services sector, um, in particular vision and, and dermatology and, and other related areas. What impact do you think COVID-19 will have on current deal activity and what are you seeing otherwise with your clients in this area? Well, what I've, what I've seen is a surprising unevenness um, in terms of the impact. Uh, so for one, uh, there had been this trend of poo-pooing on um, the more retail-oriented practices. So in the optometry world, the folks who sell contact lenses is a significant part of their revenue. Uh, somewhat surprisingly to me, and maybe just me, um, some reports came out showing that contact lens purchases actually increased initially during uh, much of the self-quarantine. And part of that is you can buy them online. So while it had been popular to poo-poo those practices on the premise that they can't compete with Warby Parker, it actually offered a lifeline for a lot of practices in those fields. Um, I think that that may be short-term, but it's something that I think uh, is allowing them to sustain numbers that will help them in terms of acquisitions. You know, in the ophthalmology space, I, I totally agree that uh, the, those folks that really focus on elective procedures, LASIK, for example, uh, are, have been struggling with the cash flow problem. Um, I think we'll, there's a lot of question marks around, will patients come back for that? Or are they going to wait until their jobs are, are fully going and they've built up their savings again uh, before committing thousands of dollars to procedures? You know, I, one thing I will mention is VET. I have the unique vantage point of, of three dogs who bark a lot, plus... One of our clients is one of the larger pet products manufacturers out there. And what I've heard from uh, both on a personal level and actually talking to them is the demand and interest, uh, both for vet services and pet products, has really sustained itself uh, throughout this time period. People spend so much time with their dogs now, they actually notice that they need uh, attention from the vet. And it's one of those um, unusual or unexpected results. Yes, it's still hard to, for the same reasons with all healthcare practices. You got a finite number of patients you can treat in a day. But for those that are staying open longer, uh, they're really seeing continued results. And I expect those to see continued M&A activity. Great. So in the, the Brentwood report, you all mention many segments of healthcare continuum like anesthesia and ER management have consistently been outsourced by hospitals. Just last week, uh, Waller closed a transaction for our client, North American Partners in Anesthesia, and its acquisition of American Anesthesiology for Mednax, which created one of the most comprehensive anesthesia and pain management companies in the U.S. Um, so provider outsourcing groups like NAPA 
are providing efficiencies and high quality services for their hospital and clinical clients. But I'm curious, given what's going on with um, COVID-19, you know, post-COVID-19, post-pandemic, what will DIL activity look like in the outsourced services sector uh, LA? Yeah, I think the, the biggest question that maybe none of us can answer today is how long it takes the volumes to return you know, to health systems, to for surgeries. A lot of these things have been put on ice, the back burner. <clears throat> so as you mentioned, with the volumes declining, M&A will be very challenging. I think we noted there was one deal, you know, one smaller deal done in the first quarter. You know, elective surgeries will need to ramp back up. I think people will need to feel comfortable going to the ER again you know, with their volumes down. And talking to health systems, uh, I thought this was an interesting data point in 2008, it took about three years to recover uh, their volumes back to normal. So, and that was not a health healthcare pandemic scare. That was a financial crisis. So how long does it take this time? I think most would tell you probably longer. Uh, Porter, I know a large portion of your practice is in working with healthcare IT companies. Um, how is COVID-19 impacting M&A in that space? Yeah, I think generally, you know, healthcare IT companies can, can in, in a lot of cases, have recurring revenue business models that, at least in the short term, would insulate them from a lot of the impact that's come with COVID. You know, they've had to deal with, you know, converting to remote uh, work environments. They've had to ensure that, you know, data is sufficiently uh, protected and those sorts of things. But it's not like they're shutting down like a dental office might have to. I think where they're going to be challenged and, and where m activity is going to be affected is, you know, the end markets that they're going after have been you know, pretty severely impacted, whether it's hospitals, uh, whether it's surgery centers, whether it's labs. These are all in markets where you know COVID has had a pretty dramatic impact, negative impact on how they're performing. And I think what you're going to see is, you know, we still have a number of healthcare IT deals underway, but I think what you're going to see is, is a pretty uh, strong bifurcation or um, uh, distinction between companies that have a real hard dollar ROI that are have to have sort of um, solutions versus nice to have where, where the return on investment is less clear. So I, I think these are areas where we still we, we have ongoing M&A activity. We have processes underway that are advancing. Remains to be seen what the long term impact is just sure you know, due to the impact on the end markets that they're going after. So we've covered quite a few sectors that are impacted by this and healthcare. So for our listeners, particularly those that are healthcare practices or um, services companies, but we also probably have some listeners that are investors or other advisors in this area, would love to provide some some practical tips for them. So LA, I'll start with you. Any pointers you have for our listeners that may be looking to potentially sell their practice? I think the first thing they all should think about is get your business, your employees and your customers, maybe slash patients kind of settled and stabilized. I think it'd be impossible to evaluate a transaction while there's so much, there's so many variables up in the air and volumes will come back you know, over time. Uh, but I think it's a really good time to evaluate your long-term strategy of the business. The health healthcare sector is going to consolidate significantly. It already has a great deal. The payers, I think the top four payers have 80% market share. Is your business strong enough to grow in this new normal or do you need to evaluate alternatives that exist like we're discussing today, a sale, a growth raise, a recapitalization? You know, make sure you have a good board slash advisors around the table who can help you navigate not only the next few months or year, but the next five years. I think this is a really good time for introspection and to really look at your business. I'd echo what Wally said about organization, and I, it's kind of the number one tenet that we we 
you know, recommend clients follow when they're thinking about this. And that's just run the business, run your business like it's not for sale. Continue to focus on you know, your strategic priorities, continue to keep everything running, set budgets, you know, challenging though it is that are, that are achievable and, and hire a good investment bank. So the disruption to your business is, is minimal. The, the process that is. I, I agree with all of that. Um, but don't forget buyers want deals. They want good deals. And so if it's a practice that's different, so a practice that can actually demonstrate that its patient revenue is not declined or is surging back, people are waiting at the door, long line to make appointments, that they can demonstrate that the, the revenue and you know, predict, you know, choosing, for example, premium lens for contact, if you are a different type of practice from the rest of the industry, you can play into the fear that people have about the industry generally by saying, I'm the one practice that doesn't have those problematic tailwinds. I've got good backup and, and structure behind. On the other hand, if you are like the rest of the industry and suffering the exact same way, then this is a great opportunity to look inward, um, to think about uh, incentive structures. We're getting a lot of inbounds from folks that I think are rightfully thinking about all right, let's look at our incentive compensation for some of our uh, younger management team, some of our uh, associates. How can we get them motivated to take maybe a little less cash right now with more long-term opportunity so that we all are oriented towards uh, a better upside scenario in a sale? Even if it's not right now, maybe it's a year from now, but it's a better opportunity. So it is a really good time to be honestly self-assessing, I think is was what LA was getting at. And it's an opportunity that really shouldn't be missed. So I always like to end on a positive note. I know that there's, you know, a lot of fear out there right now, a lot of unknowns and uncertainty about when will this all end and when will we be back to normal, but surely there are some some positives that can come out of this and we're already seeing a lot of innovation in the healthcare space, but um LA, I'll start with you just to get your perspective on maybe some positives that could come out of this the pandemic and the economic uncertainty right now. Sure. I think the the biggest positive I see if we draw a parallel to 2008 is the strongest companies, operators will get through this, evolve and thrive. If you look at the the banks that were well set up, that were well governed, that were well you know capitalized in 2008, they ended up gobbling up market share and buying other weaker institutions. Uh, and now they're much stronger today than we that industry was 12 years ago. Uh, so today in healthcare, whether it's buying smaller companies in the sectors, adding new service lines that diverse their platforms. There's lots of ways they can evolve and grow. I think this has been a historic you know, business interruption that no one predicted and the U.S. hasn't seen before. Uh, so I'm optimistic that the best operators and companies will use this to their advantage to become more efficient. I would think that this would create a, just a, a greater appreciation for the frontline healthcare workers that have kind of been in the trenches with this for the last handful of months. I think like LA said, I think it's going to be a situation that um, really forces everybody to focus on results as you get out of this, whether it's, you know, uh, minimizing, you know, uh, COVID incidents and, and improving patient safety, streamlining operations. Um, certainly financial results, results are always a part of that. But I think it's just you're going to see the good companies um, continue to perform and get better. 
as we come out of this. I'm hopeful that the best companies will get loyalty really from the folks that they um, maintained and were able to bring back to the extent they were furloughed. The hopeful thing, and I think this is exactly what LA and Porter are getting at, is the good companies will rise to the top. And sometimes being stressed in this kind of uh, macroeconomic environment where there's big problems does yield stronger companies for those that rise to the top and, and identify leadership and efficiencies in how they run their operations. The kinds of things they might have overlooked before when it was easier. So, you know, it's my hope that we see that. But to echo Porter's point, I think it would be fantastic uh, across the world to see this greater appreciation for healthcare workers. It's deserved. Great. Well, thank you all so much for joining me today. Thank you for listening to this episode of Point by Point, brought to you by Waller. Visit the News and Insights section of our website to listen to more episodes, subscribe to the podcast, find show notes, and more. 